Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we've read the text already this morning. The title of this, this morning's message is Never Stop Improving. Never Stop Improving. Some of you work at Home Depot, and I've already apologized to you. Never Stop Improving uh, was, for seven years, the motto of Lowe's. Never Stop Improving. What I, I'm fascinated by corporate mottos and taglines and slogans. Never stop improving. That just makes you feel good, doesn't it? Like if you go to Lowe's and buy a can of paint and repaint, you know, the kitchen, you've done a wonderful thing. Of course, they got the money you paid for the paint. But you don't want to stop there, do you? You want to do the bathroom, And if you remodel your bathroom, you're improving your house, but you're improving yourself, and Lowe's is making money. This is such a win-win situation. Never stop improving. I, I, you know, maybe you read right through it too. I read right through it back seven years ago, and then I went to Lowe's, and I had to buy some paint, and I bought some faucets, etc. Never stop improving. Peter is telling us the same thing today. Peter's telling us to never stop improving. As I read through these verses, you saw him say in verse 5, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and supplement your virtue with knowledge, the implication is. And, And on and on and on he goes with this list of things. Basically, Peter is telling us never stop improving. The good news is that instead of Instead of you and I having to go to Lowe's and we want to put up a privacy fence, so we have to pay the money for the fencing and, and all the other materials that go along with that. Instead of us paying for all that, when it comes to never stop improving in these character qualities in verses 5, 6, and 7, God himself pays for them. And he basically calls us, literally calls us, to take what he's paid for and make it our own. Never stop improving. I'll summarize, you could summarize the message with the title, or we could summarize it this way as we think about the larger book of Second Peter. Knowing Jesus means you will grow in Jesus. Knowing Jesus means that you will grow in Jesus. And this to me is incredibly, incredibly liberating and freeing. And I hope it is for you as well today. Knowing Jesus means you will grow in him. Let's see how Peter unpacks this for us. The first thing we note in verses 3 and 4 is that we are to know some realities. We are to know some realities. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. If you want to keep improving, there are some realities that you need to know. It's a little bit similar to if you want to do some home improvement. There are some realities that you need to know. Um, because of my background growing up and what my dad did, I know carpentry. And so when it comes to Christy and me sitting down and talking about improving our house, if it involves wood, I'm pretty much good to go. If it involves plumbing, we're in trouble. 
If it involves electricity, nope, not touching that. Particularly not while I'm doing plumbing, right? I do know that much, but, but wiring, I don't know wiring. Uh, I, 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 I know a little bit of plumbing, but I also know some friends who've got some stories to tell, and I really don't want to have one of those plumbing stories. But if you're going to improve your house, there are some things you need to know. If you're going to improve your soul, there are some things you need to know. And in two verses, Peter packs in an incredible number of realities that are actually, uh, they could be very deep, but let's just take them at face value and let's just see how good they are. All right, let's just see how good they are. The first thing I want to point to you is the reality uh, that's apparent in, in the Greek and is not apparent in the English, and I don't throw that card out there often, but today it really helps. The very first words that Peter writes here are all things. Now, our English translation has smoothed it out so that we have a, a nice English word order, but, but literally what Peter is saying is all things have been given to you by his divine power. He puts all things right at the front. Peter and the Holy Spirit want you to know that everything is at your disposal to be self-controlled. Now that right now may collide in your mind and in your soul because you don't feel self-control as often as you want to. But Peter wants you to know that everything you need for self-control is available for you. Know this reality. Everything you need to obey God, God wants to give you. In fact, it says He has granted it to you. This word for granting is, is, is not the same thing as, as giving your kid a snack so that they kind of like are quiet. It's the giving that they do up on a platform when they give a student their diploma because they finished high school or college. It's that formal sort of giving. God doesn't just give us help to, to like get us away so he can like finish checking Facebook or something. God formally gives to us everything that we need for life and godliness. It's a formal thing. It's a, it's a, it's a regal thing. It's a wonderful thing. What does he give to us? He gives to us three things. He gives us knowledge of him to break it down. He gives us precious and very great promises. And he gives us the, the, the privilege of partaking in the divine nature. Let's just look at these three real quick. What is the knowledge of him? What is the knowledge of him? I would, I would put it this way. It's the difference between knowing about someone and knowing someone. It's the difference between you being a supporter of a president or a presidential candidate and you being the child of that president or that presidential candidate. The, the knowledge of him that's talked about here in Second Peter is, is the, the knowledge of a child. Not a supporter, but the knowledge of a child. It is, it is a knowledge that grows as well. It's a knowledge that grows as the relationship grows. So when you were five, you knew your mother or your father in a certain way. 
They were the person who cooked meals and went off to work, did something magical with laundry, yelled at you about laundry. When you were 15, you knew more about your parents. The relationship was closer. You understood a little bit more about uh, where that food and laundry came from, etc., etc. When you were 25, you understood things about bills that you didn't understand before. When you were 35, maybe you had a mortgage, and you really knew what mom and dad went through. And when mom and dad did their mortgage burning, and you were like paying on your second or third year of the mortgage, you were like, oh my goodness, now I know why they're so happy, right? Our our knowledge, our knowledge of relationship is so different from our knowledge about people who are distant. And this is what we have, he says. We have a knowledge of him, and, and, and it is close, it's relational. He's given this to us. He's called us to this knowledge, and he's called us to share in his glory and excellence. The next thing we have is that he has granted to us precious and very great promises. This is a reality that we need to know. There are precious and very great promises. Uh, That word great is the word mega in Greek. There are mega promises. For some of you, that will be the one thing you remember from this sermon. And that's okay. You have mega promises from God. What if you had a mega credit account at your favorite home improvement store? And it included not just materials, but labor. What if you had, some of you are dreaming, and I've now lost you. Like, we've gone, we've, we've gone beyond kitchen and bath, not just the deck, all the landscaping. Even the living room might get redone, right? And why is it the living room is always the last thing that gets done in remodeling? What if you had a mega credit account that was paid? The promises specifically uh, are not noted here in Second Peter chapter 1. But I think through the next phrase, we have these precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. I think that the promises that he's talking about have to do with partaking in the divine nature. What does it mean to partake in the divine nature? Does it mean that we become gods? Does it mean that we become gods? That's what some of the world religions teach. Some of the world religions teach us to to escape the corruption that's in the world and become part of the divine essence. Part of the divine oneness. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches something something similarly spiritual, but something distinctly unique. He talks about great and precious promises, and we are partakers of the divine nature. I want to show you a couple verses from the book of Ezekiel. This is a prophecy that was given about 500 years before Peter lived. It says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, uh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
Here we have a promise, and that promise has to do with God putting his spirit in us, with us partaking of the divine nature. I think this is what Peter has in mind, because when Peter preached this first sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter said this in Acts 2. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one, in you, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter preached that message on Pentecost and he was preaching to those people. But he says the promise is not just for them, it's for all who are far off. We're pretty far away from Jerusalem and we're pretty far away from 2,000 years ago. But it's for everyone who... The Lord calls to himself, this sharing of the divine nature is the Holy Spirit within us. And I think it's easy for us to think about, um, uh, I think it's easy for us to think very commonplace about the Holy Spirit within us. But let's go back to Pentecost to think about what the Holy Spirit did and how the Holy Spirit was, was pictured. The Holy Spirit was, was a fire. There were tongues of fire, some, you know, sort of, um, you know, not a literal tongue, not like the Rolling Stones tongue on a t-shirt. No, not like that. A, a flicker of fire, a flame of fire that was somehow visible to represent the, 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 the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is a wind, and we know that wind has power, but we can't see the wind. All we can see is the effect. But we know that fire has, has power. Fire, power, in, in a, a gun or a rifle, shotgun. The power that's within your automobile is actually a very controlled fire. It's a controlled system of repeated fires. Fire is what moves your vehicle. Fire is what heats your house. Fire, in so many cases, is what generates the electricity that uh, turns on the AC that we enjoy. Fire, heat... Combustion is the picture of the Spirit. Within us is a combustion engine, and God sends that Spirit within us so that we can, if I could go back to to that Ezekiel verse real quick. God puts His Spirit within us so that it causes us to walk in His statutes and to be careful to obey His rules. Why would we need that? Because before we had the Spirit, we had hearts of stone calcified rocks within our chest. And what does the Spirit do? It changes all that and it gives us hearts that beat for God. And Peter is telling all of this this stuff before he tells us how we're supposed to live because he wants us to know that when he tells us how to live, there 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 is a push behind that that is aiding us. There is wind in our sails to do these things. And is this not a mega promise? That God himself would come and inhabit rebels. Is it not a mega promise that God himself would come and be with us and he would, he would, he would redirect our wills and he would make us to be willing and make us to be doing when all we wanted to do was to go our own way like sheep who've gone astray. What a promise. 
What a promise, what a motivation that God himself would be with us. He says that we have this promise so we can escape from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. I know of very few people who look at our world today and say, man, things are going just, just grand. This is awesome. When you look at the world as a whole. I mean, that's why we have elections every four years in America, because there's a whole bunch of us who don't like the way the nation is going, one way or the other. We always want to make it better, and we should be pushing to make it better. What does make it better is when God Himself lives within His people. Where do you find yourself this morning, Christian? Where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself escaping from the corruption that is in the world? Do you find yourself running away from it? Or do you find yourself kind of kind of looking around and taking a step or two toward it? Maybe no one will notice at least too quickly, and all of a sudden, you're in a bad spot. You've been redeemed to be escaping from that corruption. You've been redeemed not to see how close you can get. You've been redeemed to get away from it. Why? Because it's decaying. And it has a decaying effect on you. It's pulling you apart. It's ripping your relationships apart. Relationship, yes, with your God and relationship with other people. And what is it that will help us to escape? What will, what will drive us to escape? It is the presence of the Spirit. These are the realities that we need to remember and know. And then we can grow. We can grow better. And that's what verses 5 through 7 are about, growing better. But we grow better because of these promises. Let's quickly look at growing better. Growing better has this whole laundry list, and it's a good laundry list. There's faith, there's virtue, there's knowledge, there's self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection with love. But, but I want to start with faith. And it's easy for us to, to read through a passage and, and miss some very key words. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith. Your faith. I want to pause for a moment and and just ask you, do you have faith in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection in your place? If you do, then this list is possible. And I hope you find this list very attractive. I mean, who wouldn't want to be uh, loving? Who wouldn't want to be self-controlled? Who wouldn't want to have knowledge of God? So if you have faith in Jesus' death and resurrection in your place, then, then this list is possible. But, but Peter starts with faith, and he says we're supplementing faith with these other things because 
because he starts with faith because you can't have these other things without faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, there are a few hundred people in here this morning. The, the chances are that there's someone who doesn't have faith in Jesus Christ this morning, who doesn't believe. Not, it's not that they don't believe Jesus lived, but, but you don't trust that Jesus died in your place. You don't have a relationship with him by trust, by confession of sin. Friend, we, we, we are here celebrating our faith, and we're here inviting you to be a believer as well. We're inviting you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. So this, uh, in, in verses 5, 6, and 7, can characterize your life. We're inviting you to this because we want to see you escape from the, the junk that's going on in this world. We want to see you have an entrance into the kingdom of Jesus Christ one day. But your faith cannot come from our faith. Your faith has to be yours. You have to make that choice to humble yourself. Look at the cross that we've sung about these four men saying again and again, He takes away the sins of the world. He takes away the sins of the world. Has Jesus taken away your sins because you asked for forgiveness? He won't unless you ask. He most certainly will when you do ask. And he does so because he died in your place. So this list starts with faith. This list is interesting because we are told that God has given us all these precious promises, but we are to make every effort to supplement our faith with these characteristics. We are to supplement. We, we, um, we know the word supplement. Some of you take supplements. You take them every morning with orange juice. Because you don't like the taste of them, right? We supplement. We know that we're going to eat a relatively balanced diet that day, but we take these supplemental vitamins to make up for any lack. We don't make up for any lack on God's part, but basically God is saying to us, okay, um, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, but you just don't sit back and sip lemonade enjoying the shade. No, you get involved in this process too. God works, and we work. God does most of the work, but God calls us, commands us, and there are two commands in our passage today. God commands us to make every effort. God commands us to make every effort to, uh, to have uh, virtue. Virtue is the same word as excellence up in verse 3. God wants us to have knowledge. He wants us to grow in our knowledge of Him. Not simply our knowledge about Him, but our knowledge with Him, of Him. He wants us to grow in our self-control. He doesn't want us to be slaves to our own passions. He wants us to be enduring. He wants us to be godly. And this is interesting. This, this godliness is, is God-likeness. Where would God-likeness come from? The Spirit within us. He wants us to have brotherly affection. This is particularly relevant for us. This is Philadelphia. This is uh, that Greek, Greek word for brotherly love. Um, having only lived in this area for five years, I have 41 years of my life to have made jokes about Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly shove. Do you guys call yourselves that? Yeah, okay. Or does the rest of the country call you that? 
I think it's funny. The city of brotherly shove. And you're like, you're like that's not, what's wrong with that? A shove, that just means we like you. We didn't like you. Well, yeah, you wouldn't just shove, right? Um, we, are, we are family, and so we love each other. And, and that has to come from the Holy Spirit, because some of us aren't real likable. I said us. I didn't say you. I said us. I included me in that. Some of me isn't really very likable. So we need the Holy Spirit to make us love each other. And then it goes to love. What would be the difference between brotherly affection and love? Well, Jesus told us to, to love our neighbor as ourself. Believer or unbeliever, we're to love. And that takes the Holy Spirit because some neighbors are prickly, right? I just glance back at the Pharrells. They're my neighbors. They're not prickly. Some of you have prickly neighbors. It's funny who your eyes catch as you're preaching. Some of you may think I'm preaching at you when I say something. I promise you I'm not. In fact, I probably look away from you if I'm preaching about you. And you're like, he's preaching about me? Of course I'm preaching about you. Peter wrote about people. I'm preaching for you. Right? This whole text is not about us looking to see, ah, does Peter really get it right? This text is for us to see where we are. It's a mirror to look at ourselves. And so what is love? Love is loving our neighbor as ourself, whether that's a believer or unbeliever. Love, Jesus said, extends to our enemies. Love your enemies. Sometimes, sometimes those enemies are in our physical family and Jesus says to love them. And we have, we have exceeding great and precious promises that we can, in fact, love that family member who is impossible to love. Our enemies might be someone at work who has it out for us. And, and we've got colleagues who have kind of picked sides. And we got colleagues at work who are on our side, and they're just like, why don't you do to them what they do to you? And Peter says, add to your faith love, love for your enemy. And without the Holy Spirit, without us partaking of the divine nature, that would be impossible, wouldn't it? But with these exceeding great and precious promises, that's possible. Some of you are so glad that school's out because you have enemies at school. And Jesus says to love those enemies. And you're like, well, can't love them now because we're not in school anymore, so what do I do? Invite them over this summer? Go get some ice cream? Go to the pool? I don't know. Whatever you like to do and they like to do. Particularly what they like to do. Love your enemies. And you're like, I can't. And you're right, you can't. So, so God gives us the Holy Spirit. He takes a heart of stone out. He puts a heart of flesh in. And we've got the Holy Spirit so that we can be careful to obey His rules. We really can never stop improving. We really can. But some of us are satisfied. Some of us are satisfied. We're satisfied that we don't sin as much as we used to. 
We're satisfied that we're good enough. We're satisfied that, yeah, I could, I could tidy up the basement of my soul, but it's down there and nobody sees it. Peter says, add. Make every effort to supplement. Make every effort to live out what Jesus is trying to create in you. Make every effort. How do I do that? Here's the easy way to look at this list. And here's a very common way to go away from this list. We leave today and we say, I need to be more self-controlled. But that's not the command. If I could be so um, teacher-like for a moment, would everyone please look at their Bibles? I, sound like a, I feel like a parent when I say that. Look at, look at verse 5. The command in verse 5 is not be virtuous. The command is not be self-controlled. The command is make every effort to supplement. And the beginning of verse 5 says, for this very reason, for the stuff he says in verses 3 and 4, because of those promises, make every effort. Now, you're like, Josh, that was great linguistic stuff, but what does that mean? Here are some phrases that we know that can help. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Stay in step with the Spirit, as we looked at in Galatians. Don't quench the Spirit. My friends, you and I know when we're in a moment where our passions are controlling us and we're about to lose control, we know the Holy Spirit is there. We know the Holy Spirit is flickering. And we have an opportunity, don't we? The Holy Spirit's there wanting to ignite obedience. And we have the choice to either fan that flame or to quench it. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Be filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit prompts, a different word picture here, when the Holy Spirit prompts, we're controlled by the Spirit, not by our passions. Yield to the Spirit. As if we were a horse and the bit is pulled to the right. We don't pull to the left. We yield to the Spirit. And if all of those seem to you unattainable, we can pray for the Spirit. We can all pray. We can all pray. And here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you, if you men are evil and you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see, God has given us His Spirit, and yet we are times where we need to pray that the Spirit we have would be greater than the flesh that we have. And so we can pray. We can pray. And Peter says there are promises to keep us going. The last thing I want us to look at is in verses 8 through 11. No growth. No growth. What's going to happen if we believe these promises and if we supplement, if we, if we move from one level of maturity to another level of maturity to another level, what's going to happen? We're going to know growth. Look at verse 8. It says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, go down to the middle of verse 10. For if you practice these qualities, uh, he, is, he is going to take um, an assumption that we are doing these things 
And he's going to wrap those around uh, a warning to us and a command to us. Let's look first at the, 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 the bread, so to say. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes the Bible writers use a stick to get us to obey, and other times they use a carrot to get us to obey. This right here is very much uh, the use of a carrot. I think all of us would want to be effective Christians. All of us want to be fruitful Christians. Well, if these things are increasing by the power of the Spirit, as we rely on the Spirit, then we are going to feel and be effective and fruitful. If these are yours and increasing, never stop improving. They will be in abundance. In fact, some English translations say, if you have a great many of these, or another way to put it is, for if these are big with you. Isn't that what you want? This is why you planted a garden this spring and early summer, because you're hoping in July and August and September and October, there's going to be a big amount of tomatoes and green beans and broccoli and pumpkins and zucchini. Where does all the zucchini come from? Remember the first time you gardened, you thought you'd need about seven or eight plants of zucchini? And you had zucchini until February of the next year? You, you can be like a spiritual zucchini plant. Maybe you're like, I don't like zucchini. Whatever plant you want to be, right? Uh, and, and this language takes us back to Jesus' parable of the soils. Jesus' parable of the soils. In some soil, the word was there, and it, just, it, it was rocky, and uh, the, there, was, there was no life and no fruit. In, in the, um, that was the beaten path. In the rocky soil, the seed was thrown there and it sprang up like, like the weeds out in the gravel. And, um, but there was no fruit because the heat was too intense. And Jesus said, that's like, that's like people who hear the word and they superficially accept it. But then when, when, when the opposition heats up, we find out they weren't real, they weren't genuine. And then there was the seed that was sown in, in ground that's weedy. And once again, we have a superficial acceptance, an external um, adding on, a, 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 an identifying with Christians, but not Christianity itself. And there's no fruitfulness there. What Peter is talking about here, and maybe his mind went back to the day Jesus told that parable. What Peter is talking about here is when the word goes into us. And we confess. We repent. We trust Jesus. And the spirit comes to live within us. And we are changed. And, and our lives are different. And we're not taping fruit on. We produce fruit. And when this increases... Peter says here in these verses that this protects us in verse 9. He says, Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he's blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. This protects us from wondering whether or not we're a Christian. 
This keeps us from what's been called spiritual myopia. Some of you are nearsighted. Some of you know what it's like to, to not be able to see things that are far away. You can only see the stuff that's really close. And, and Peter's giving us this, this, this uh, extreme example. He's saying you're so nearsighted that you're blind. You can't, you can't get things close enough. And you can't look back into your past and see you were forgiven of your sins and you should be leaving those. You're not sure where you are. It's a warning. There's a carrot. You can be really fruitful, but there's also a warning. A warning that if you're not growing, you're going you're gonna to struggle with knowing your God and knowing the state of your soul. Now, what we could do here is we become very fixated on the state of our soul, and, and we could try and figure out, well, am I a believer? Am I not a believer? Why don't, we, uh, why don't we go back to something a little more simple, a little more basic? What are we supposed to do when we sin? What are we supposed to do when we sin? We're supposed to confess our sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whether you are or aren't is not a huge deal in terms of figuring it out how you fit in these verses. What the big deal is, is is if you don't see yourself as someone who shows love, then you ask God to forgive you and you believe Jesus paid for that sin, and He will forgive. And your life will begin to be transformed. You put your faith in Christ. You confess your sin. Over and over, you believe the promises and you will be fruitful and you will be effective. Verse 10, we come to the next command in this passage. We come to the next command in verse 10. Uh, And that is the command for us to be all the more diligent to make our calling and election sure. You'll probably note this is the second time that, that Peter has talked about these these Christians being called. He said the very same thing up in verse 3. Calling and election are words that for some of us uh, will take our minds to a certain theological system. And I'm not here to promote a theological system. I'm not here to defend one uh, or oppose another at this point in time. What I'm here to do is to take what the Bible has to say and just be clear with it. Christians are called and elected. Why would Peter throw this in here? I think Peter would throw this in here because in this passage, he's reminding us that as much as he wants us to make our calling and election sure, and he wants us to make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue, he wants to remind us that he is the one who started this process in the first place. He's the one who called us and elected us. Now, what does all of that mean? We'll save that for another time. Um, But it certainly means he took the initiative. And if he takes the initiative, if this is more than my idea, then he's going to finish what he started. If he started self-control in you, he's going to finish it. If he started godliness in you, he's going to finish it. This is meant to encourage us. This is not meant for us to debate. 
This is meant for us to grasp hold of when times are difficult, when we don't feel brotherly affection, and to say, God, you started this. Finish this in me. Finish this in me. I can't, I, I can, I can hardly do what you say to supplement it. Finish this in me. And if we do this, he says there will be added to us this, this entrance into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. There will be richly provided for you an entrance. Richly provided if you know growth. Let's go back to the phrase we looked at before. Knowing Jesus means you will grow in Jesus. And what's the reward for that? We feel like the reward is a lot of missed opportunities to have a lot of fun in life. But what Peter tells us is that when we live this way, under the control of the Holy Spirit, there is richly provided for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom. My mind goes back to one of those, uh, one of those scenes where, where uh, uh, an ancient army marches back into the capital city and the heroes are lauded and cheered and they throw flowers and there's trumpets blaring and all that stuff. And I think, I think I'm really far away from what this actually means. Because, because there's no earthly kingdom that can compare to Jesus' kingdom. And if there's no earthly kingdom that can compare to Jesus' kingdom, then, then the celebration of heaven for rebels who've been redeemed and now start living, sharing the divine nature, the, the celebration that will be for you and I is really beyond our imagination. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for people who will believe his promises and will never stop improving. Yeah, it'd be nice to get the nursery done. Be great to update the landscaping. Get rid of the olive-colored refrigerator. But more than that, let God remodel your soul. Let him keep remodeling it. Let him move from this room to this room, from the attic to the basement, to the borders of your property, whether it's a tenth of an acre or 11 acres. Let him keep remodeling. Because as he does, he's preparing you by his grace and for his glory to be celebrated when his kingdom comes. Never stop improving. Let's bow to personally pray and think. And then Eric will come. Lead us in a closing song.